And then when I was getting ready to review that, I couldn't find my notes. And so uh, this is a Brussels to Washington special uh, on the plane yesterday. And I was just rejoicing as I was studying away there uh, on that plane ride. What I want to do is provide a bit of a supplement, a supplemental study to what we've been looking at over these last weeks, since the beginning of the year, we started, you remember, the book of First Peter, the first Sunday of January, and we've been working our way through that really wonderful little letter, and we've been finding, I have been finding at least, and I hope that you can say the same thing, a great amount of encouragement, a great amount of insight and instruction from that little letter, as Peter, the Apostle Peter now, is writing to scattered, suffering saints. They they are finding themselves in the midst of increasing persecution. And, and added to that increasing persecution, they're finding themselves locked in the midst of various kinds of suffering. According to verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1, they find themselves in the midst, uh, they, they're finding themselves being grieved by various trials. And for most of our time together over these last weeks, since the beginning of the year, We've really been talking about that subject. We've been talking a lot about trials. We've been talking a lot about suffering in our lives. We've been thinking about the various difficulties of life, which we've learned actually serve to try our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so as to prove whether or not our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is actually genuine. Those things are varied, to be sure, but in the case of Peter's readers, they're finding an onslaught of persecution as the major contribution to these grievous hardships. But this morning, I want to to think about, again, the issues of trials, the issues of hardships, the, the trials, the sufferings, the difficulties that you and I endure as believers in Jesus Christ. Peter has called them tests of our faith. According to chapter 1, verse 7, they are tests of our faith. Now, I've told you many times, and I'm sure I'll tell you many times again, there are only three kinds of Christians in the world. Right? Those who are in the midst of a trial, those who are coming out of a trial, and those who are going into a trial. There's the only kinds of Christians that there are in the world. These are the things that most would consider to be bad things. Bad things happen to God's people. The Bible declares this over and over and over again. Job 5 says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The psalmist declared in Psalm 22, be not far from me for trouble is near. Ecclesiastes 2, all his days are full of sorrow. His world is a vexation. Even in the night there is no rest. John said, I've said the, uh, Jesus said in the, in the book of John, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is all through the Bible. Jesus says it, David says it, Solomon says it, Paul says it, Peter told us that the Christian will face various trials. And even in our text this morning, which I said is a supplement to 1 Peter, in James chapter 1, James tells us the same thing. James tells us that we will face various trials. 
Now you remember, when we started in Peter, we find Peter not saying to these suffering saints, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I feel badly that you're feeling this way. He could say those things, but he does not say that. What does he say? He says, bless the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He told us to speak well of God even in the midst of grievous suffering and heartache. And we spent a good time, a, a good deal of time thinking about that, thinking about this call to speak well of God even when we face trials. But I want to revisit it again this morning from this different text in Scripture in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And I am really eager to do something for you, dear brother or sister. I am eager to help you to know how you could speak well of God when you face a trial. How you can, instead of speaking poorly of God or questioning God or being angry with God, how you can speak well of God as you face the inevitable tribulation that you will experience as a Christian. Today, we're going to look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And in James chapter 1, there are three very important lessons regarding trials in our lives that well, when we learn these lessons, it's going to help us to speak well of God. To speak well of God. Let me read the text and then I'll show you those three things. Look at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And this is the word of God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." Join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to your holy word. And the power of your word is not dependent on the power of the preacher. It's dependent on you. And so I I ask you, O God, to come not because we deserve it, but to come in an unusual way this morning and attend to the ministry of your word in the hearts of your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. This morning I want to show you three lessons that are very important lessons that will help us to understand trials and temptations in our life. First of all, in verse 12, we're going to notice with me the blessings of a trial or the blessings of the trial. And then next, we'll see the the part of this text that's really the biggest part of the text. We'll notice the, the warning, the warnings in the trial from verses 13 to 15. 
So the blessings of the trial, the warnings in the trial, and then lastly, in verses 16 through 18, the encouragements for the trial. First of all, let's look together this morning at this lesson. We'll call this the lesson of the blessings, the blessings of the trial. You see right away in verse 12 that James is drawing our attention, and he has been doing this, I mean, if we, if we were to continue on or begin here in chapter 1, you'll notice that he's been talking about one who is undergoing what he calls, according to verse 2, various, one of the various trials that a Christian will endure. He's talking about somebody who is undergoing one of these various trials. Here is one who is undergoing a trial and he remains steadfast. Now, that's interesting and you need to somehow Highlight that in your Bible, this idea of blessed is a man who remains steadfast under a trial. That phrase, it, it refers to one who bears up, who bears up under the load of misery. He's bearing up under the load of an adversity. It is the word here that he uses is the word for patient endurance. He is patiently enduring in the midst of a trial. To patiently endure. Now this is really hard, isn't it? Because anytime we talk about patience, we, we understand how difficult. It is difficult to patiently endure under a trial. But to patiently endure in a trial means to wait upon God. Now it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. You're just ready to get something over with to get something finished but in the midst when you bear up under a trial when you remain steadfast under a trial you're waiting on God you're trusting God you're looking to God to do his work in the midst of a trial we don't know how long a trial might last we don't know how long a, a time of grief or or affliction or adversity as a Christian will last in our life. But we can know this, that God is at work. And when you remain under a trial, when you remain steadfast, when you patiently wait on God, you're bearing up underneath that trial. And you have to ask yourself, what might that look like? So let's think this morning, what would it look like if I were patiently waiting on God in the midst of a trial? Wouldn't that look like Speaking well about God? Wouldn't that look like instead of questioning God, instead of doubting God, instead of saying bad things about God, wouldn't that look like saying good things about God, speaking well about God? Maybe speaking of his attributes that are magnified even in the midst of a trial? Praying in such a way that magnifies him. Not calling into question his love. Not calling into question his ability. Maybe, maybe bearing under a trial. Patiently waiting under the trial. Means that you repent. Because maybe that trial has exposed some area of weakness. Most definitely that trial has exposed some area of immaturity. Or sin in your life. That patiently waiting for God means God in the midst of this trial, it's actually good for me because I'm going to respond in repentance as you have revealed some sin in my heart. You see, where there is a trial in the life of a believer, we should see that that trial is actually 
beneficial because it is assigned by God and designed by God for an achieved end. So let's think about the blessings of a trial. What are the blessings of a trial? Well, James mentions two. First of all, he points us to the result. There is a blessing in a trial because of the result of a trial. What does he say in verse 12? How does he begin it? He begins with the word blessed. Blessed is the man. Now, this is, you just stop right there for a moment. This is all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 94, verse 12. Listen to what it says. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, Psalm 94, 12. Or how about Psalm 119, 67? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or Psalm 119, 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Or Psalm 119, 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Proverbs 3, 11 the, proverb, the writer of Proverbs tells his son, he said, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him who he loves as the father, the son in whom he delights. James says that the one who endures in the midst of the trial is a blessed man. In other words, the result of a trial is the demonstration that the one who is enduring that trial is blessed. I well remember Dr. Zodiati's teaching me. He said, Joe, whenever you see this word blessed, think of it this way. It's referring to one who is in a right relationship to God. He said this. He said, uh, it is the state of being marked by fullness from God. That's real blessedness. Blessedness is not demonstrated in the kind of car you drive or the house that you live in or the size of your bank account, but the result of a trial, the result of remaining under a trial and being patient in God can be said this, you can be called a blessed man. What results from a bearing up under the load of a trial is a blessedness. The sense in which you are shown to be a true child of God. When you bear up under a trial and you wait patiently on God and you respond as, as he leads you through his word, that is a demonstration that you are a true child of God. Thus, I would say a trial is really a blessing. It's really a benefit. You shouldn't lose sight of the fact that such trust in the Lord and such love for the Lord and worship for the Lord and a posture of humble repentance before the Lord when you're encountering a trial, it provides a wonderful demonstration of the genuineness of your faith. So in that way, you could actually say, praise the Lord for this trial. You might even say, I can count it all joy when I fall into various trials. Because there is a wonderful opportunity. In the midst of that trial, there is a wonderful opportunity presented to demonstrate true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God has designed. The Lord has does a wonderful design in mind of each trial. Uh, and that is to unveil something that is not only true about himself, but listen, to unveil something that is true about 
you. That's the attitude that we, ha- we are to have. It is revealing uh, the character of the Christian. The trial is a way of producing steadfastness, has a way of producing steadfastness. So re- when you're in the midst of a, of a trial and you find that you hold on to Christ more than you ever had before, you can say, man, Jesus has become dearer to me than at any other time in my life. I have found a deeper praise, a more intense worship, a greater treasuring of him, a deeper prayer, a greater humility, a more sincere repentance, a a, a greater conviction, more of a concentrated consecration to him. Then you have some of the most convincing assurances of being a child of God. In that way, you would say, it's good for me that I'm afflicted. It's good because of the result of remaining under a trial. But not only does, he, does James point us to the result, he points us to the reward, doesn't he? You see what he says in verse 12? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive... When, When he has been approved by God, he says, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, you are those who stayed with me in my trials and I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul said in Romans 2, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. What's the reward? What's the reward for those who've been approved by God, who've who've God said, your faith is genuine because you've, you've, you've stood the test, you've endured, you've waited patiently in the trial. You might not have done it perfectly, but there was the evidence that I am your God and you are my child. What does God say he will give? The crown of life. Or maybe we could say it this way, the crown which is life. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day, and that's exactly what Peter told us, when we will receive the full crowning jewel of our eternal inheritance, eternal life itself, which is exactly what Jesus told that suffering church in Revelation 2. He said, do not fear what you're about to suffer. He said, behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison for 10 days so that you may be tested. And for 10 days, he says, you will have tribulation. But he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's coming a day. There's coming a day of great glory 
which, which is to be recalled to us, just like the Apostle Paul recalled it in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he said, For I am convinced that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is coming a day which will make the present sufferings appear to be worthless in comparison with the incomparable glory which is to come. That's how God speaks of our, inher- our heavenly inheritance. That's how he speaks of eternal life. This is the reward. Isn't trial a blessing? Because then, my friends, we'll be able to somehow look back on those trials and see how God has produced in us the approval that we are the children of God. And when he gives to us that final gift of eternal life. This is viewed here as a reward. A reward uh, an approval of God, so to speak. And, and we should remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's not so much the reward of our achievement as it is the reward of our love. You see, all you have to do, it's no great thing to remain steadfast under a trial because all you have to do is love God. And love is not burdensome. Do we speak of love as burdensome? Do you think that I would speak of love for my wife as burdensome? Not if I love my life. I don't speak of my love for her like, all right, honey, I'm trying really hard to love you. Every, oh, there we go. I'm a little bit more. No. I love her with the overflow of love. All you have to do to endure a trial is love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You don't see Him, but you love Him. And you love Him because He first loved us and demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Trials are a blessing. Trials are a blessing because of the, the, the result. It has the opportunity to demonstrate that we're children of God. And trials are a blessing because of the reward. Now, I've been wanting to say something for a while. And sometimes when you're a pastor, you want to say something, but you don't have the right text to say it. And I'm not sure if this is the right text, but I still want to say it. Some of you parents, you might feel like your parenting is a trial right now. And it, it probably is. Because the call to be a parent is not a call to fuzzy joy. He has called you to be a parent And it is not a call to fuzzy joy because the call to be a parent is a call to battle. It is a call to a deeper spiritual battle than you have ever known before and a call to a more spiritual, a a call to a more profound spiritual maturity than you've ever achieved before or than you've ever sought before. So yes, having and training And parenting children is a trial. It is a difficulty in your life. But do not 
have in your mind that this is something that you just can't, I can't go on anymore. I've heard, I've heard dads say, I, look, I can't do this anymore. I go to work every day. I come home every day. I just can't do this anymore. This is a blessing in your life to demonstrate who you really are in Christ. And one day, as you faithfully serve, faithfully serve, faithfully serve, one day, you receive the crown that is life. And you look back and you say, I did nothing to deserve this. This is completely the work of Christ. Look at the opportunity to parent a child or children as a blessing. That leads me to say something else. Not only the blessing of a trial, the blessings of a trial, but there is a warning in the trial. Verses 13 to 15. James has been thinking up to this point about the outward or circumstantial trials of life. But you notice something happens here. He takes the same word that he's been using. Trials, 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 trials. And now what does he speak about? Verse 13 to 15. He starts speaking about what? Being tempted. He goes from trial, trial, trial. Now he's speaking about being tempted. Temptation. He uses the, the same word for trial that's translated trial, the first 12 verses, and now all of a sudden it's translated, and in the context, it's spoken of in terms of a temptation. He's been thinking about the outward circumstances of life, but now he takes that same word and he uses it to refer to the inner enticement to sin. We call it temptation. And he gives us a really, really important warning. A really important warning for every child of God. And you should hear this well. What James is teaching, I really want you to get this, brothers and sisters. What James is teaching us is that how we face God-sent trials is so important. In other words, let me say it this way. Speaking well of God as a Christian in the midst of your trial, it's not just a little inconsequential thing. It is massively important in your life because how you respond to a God-sent trial, to how you respond to the outward circumstantial trials, determines whether or not that trial becomes a temptation. All right? How you respond to the outward circumstantial trial that which is sent by God determines whether that trial will become a temptation. Every circumstance that you encounter demands a decision. And it is a decision regarding whether you will remain or whether you will go. It is a decision about whether you will persevere and endure as you speak well of God or whether you're going to turn tail and run in disobedience and thus demonstrate that you were never a child of God. John MacArthur said it this way. Every difficult thing that comes into my life either strengthens me because I obey God and stay confident in, in his care and trusting his power, and so I grow or I am tempted to doubt God, to deny his word, to disobey, to do what is expedient, and thus I have fallen to the solicitation to do evil. He says, the same word that means an enticement to evil is also used to speak of a trial. The difference is how you respond to it. If you respond to a trial with obedience, then you find it a means of spiritual growth. But if you respond to a trial with disobedience, it is turned into a temptation and you 
have fallen prey to it. Every trial has the potential to become a temptation depending on our response. And so he gives us some warnings. Because I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that we think it's just a little thing. It's just an inconsequential. It's not very important that I speak well of God in the midst of a trial. That I bless the Lord in the midst of a trial. And I would say you've gotten that tremendously wrong. Because of these warnings. And he gives us a series of three warnings. And I, and I think if I'm remembering correctly, I got this, this, this outline from R. Kent Hughes. I think that's where I read it. But I thought it was good, so I'll use it today. He gives us a warning, first of all, of the source of temptation. Never say, James says, never say when you're tempted, oh, I'm tempted by God. It can be the case that when you face some sore trial, when you face some heartbreaking hardship, that instead of remaining, that you get attracted to something or someone else. And I've heard this in a very blunt way. I remember hearing one young man who essentially told me that his fornication was predestined by God. His fornication was predestined by God and that while he, he would say, well, uh, God wasn't necessarily, that he, he would say, I'm not necessarily without blame. He saw his fornication as something God ordained. Can you imagine that? He said that God had ordained his fornication. Now, there are other ways, people say this, there, there are more subtle ways, but just as deadly. Perhaps there's some hardship. What I mean is, could there be some hardship, some trial that has been introduced into your life, and you find yourself waning from God? In the midst of that trial, in the midst of, in the midst of that hardship, you turn from God as you are being attracted to something or someone else. You find yourself in a new job for which you prayed, and then a situation is, induced, is introduced which could easily result in sin. But you happen to reason, well, this never would have happened if the circumstance or situation I'm in never happened. And God's the one who brought that circumstance or situation. So therefore, God is at fault. You say, well, that's stupid. Nobody would ever say that. Really? God comes walking in the midst of the garden looking for man. And he finds Adam and he says, what happened? And Adam said, well, here's the problem. That woman you gave me took the fruit. And she gave it to me to eat. Even Eve did the same thing. Eve, what happened? That serpent that you made. We often turn and blame God. And what's happening here as he talks about the source of temptation is God is helping us. When you go through a hardship or trial, you will find that you're going to be met with an opportunity to demonstrate the reality of your faith or you'll be given the opportunity for your flesh. But listen, God is not going to be the one who tempts you. He's sovereign over every trial, every joy or trial we sang earlier. Falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. But James says, and he introduces here another imperative. He says, no one. 
No one, is, is, verse 13, it's placed in the emphatic position. No one, could. there's never any room for anyone to say when you face temptation that that temptation has come from God. James is really speaking of a way that we justify, we rationalize sin, which seems to be making it okay. James is dealing here with an issue that may have already been a problem with his readers. It seems that some of them were experiencing temptation to evil and that they were shifting the blame for it. A closer study of the original words helps to give us a clearer understanding of what he's talking about here. In verse 13, he says, let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God. The word by suggests origin, not agency. In other words, it's a word that looks to the indirect basis or cause of something. James is not telling us that people are going around directly blaming God for their temptation. That thought would be unthinkable. But he does say that people are indirectly blaming God for their temptation. And he says this must never be. You must never blame God for your temptation because God himself is never tempted. His own nature. He cannot be tempted and he himself tempts no one ever. God is neither the source of your temptation nor is he himself susceptible to temptation. So he warns us about understanding properly the source of temptation. And then he talks to us about the force of temptation. For, he says in verse 14, each person is tempted. Each individual person is tempted. We are all tempted. Understand, everyone faces temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Where's the force of temptation? Is it Satan? Demons? No. It's emphatic here. From his own desire. It comes from within. There is our own sinful tendency which resides within us. We might call this part of what is still unredeemed in us. There lies within us all our own desire. And here's the fact, friends. When you encounter a grievous trial, you will either respond by blessing the Lord. You will either respond by blessing the Lord, maybe in praise, maybe in repentance, whatever that response may look like, but you will just patiently trust God to bring about his perfect work of whatever spiritual maturity he is ordaining for that circumstance, or you'll get distracted, and you'll decide to meet your own wants. You'll decide to, to gratify your own sinful lusts, and there's a force of temptation that is strong. The force is strong with you but not the kind of force from Star, whatever it is, Wars or Trek or whatever. He said, you're, each one is, is he, calls it, he says here, uh, each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed, when he is dragged away and enticed, but not by Satan, but by his own desire. And that's powerful. This is why, by the way, you should be careful about how you allow your emotions to be strung along. You should not live by your emotions. Christianity is about renewing your mind. Christianity is about thinking biblically. Thoughts taken captive to the lordship of Christ. Because our, un, our emotions are often unwor- untrustworthy. 
but a will in submission to the word as the scalpel of the Holy Spirit is the way of blessedness. When you find yourself in the midst of a trial, you understand this, that there's a blessing in this because there is a result and there is a reward. But there, is, there are also warnings. And he's warning you, do not, when you fall into temptation, don't blame God for that. Because of the source of temptation, the force of temptation, and then the course of temptation. Look what he says. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Look at the course. Gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You and I need to understand that the act of sin has an incubation period, a gestation period. Sin is not an act, but a process. God's revealing something here to us. He's underlining something for us. He's showing us the process of sin in this passage. Stop thinking of sin as just an act. Sin is a process. And that's what Jesus, at least what Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount. When he refers to adultery and lust. When he refers to murder and hatred. Adultery is much more about the act of the heart than it is the act of the hands. That process always, always, always ends in death. And that's why I call, say this is a warning. It's a warning. It always, always, always results in death. It always ends in death. It may be the death of a marriage. It may be the death of a ministry. It may be the death of a friendship. But it will always bring forth death. And this is a great warning. Do not take responding rightly to trials lightly. As if it's, ah, it's just something I can do or not do. Well, I know Joe's saying, blessed be, you know, bless God when I, when I get sick and bless God when I'm suffering and bless God when I'm hurting. But it's not all that, oh, it is absolutely important because the way you respond to a trial determines whether that trial introduces an opportunity for temptation or not. Speak well of God always, especially when you're in a trial. Start developing that vocabulary. Start developing that language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And that way you'll see trials as a blessing. Because you've learned the warnings. But then James finishes with some encouragements for the trial. Verses 16 through 18. And the encouragements he draws immediately from the character of God. And that's really telling. He doesn't derive his encouragement from us. And that's often the difference between a false teacher and the word of God. The false teacher says, hey, you're good enough, you're strong enough, you're able. And the truth drives us right to God. And he shows us three incredible encouragements. One, God is impeccable. 
impeccable. He's perfect. Look what he says in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now there are three. This is the first of three specific notes of encouragement. The first here being that God is impeccable, that God is perfect. That is to say this. God only ever gives perfect gifts. Amen? God only ever gives perfect gifts. He only ever gives good gifts. In fact, James describes it as a a perfect gift, a, a complete gift. In both his act of giving and in the objects he gives, God is impeccable. He doesn't make mistakes. And so, when there is a trial traced upon your dial, that is not a mistake by God. When this week you get that call from the doctor and says it's cancer and there's three to six months, that is not a divine tragedy. When we experience persecution, as we most certainly will, I don't think we have yet, but we will, it's not a mistake. God is impeccable. Because you see, in the act of persecution, God is concerned with much more than preserving democracy. God is concerned with developing the image of Christ in us. God is impeccable. And he gives this encouragement to these suffering Christians and saying, God is not making a mistake. So don't respond to that trial as if something awful has happened. As something as if something strange has happened, right? Isn't that what Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 4? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're enduring as if something strange has happened. This is normal. God is impeccable. And that's why I was saying earlier, you think of your children as, oh, I just can't do it anymore. I can't do it. This is too much for me. It's, it's over me. I can't do it anymore. No, come on. Has God made a mistake? God is impeccable. Not only is he impeccable, God is immutable. Now notice what he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Immutable means that God doesn't change. And calling him the father of lights is a very Jewish way of thinking. God is the God of the lights in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the constellations. But but here's what James does. Those things appear to change, don't they? One time, you know, and, and I don't know a whole lot about this it's, uh, as I'm getting ready to show you. But one time Jupiter is here and another time it's here. And one time Orion is here and then it's gone. And then it reappears over here. And it seems to be changed and it's going back and there's shadows sometimes showing and sometimes not. But he says the Father of Lights is not like that. There is no change in him. And this is an encouragement. 
It's an encouragement as if to say that, that the presence of difficulty in your life does not change God one iota. God never changes. There's not even a hint of a shadow in him. An old music teacher was asked one time, somebody asked him, what's the good news today? And that old music teacher, without saying a word, walked across the room, he picked up a tuning fork and struck it. And as the note sounded, he said, that, my friends, is an A. It has always been an A, it is an A, and will always be an A. 5,000 years ago it was an A, and 10,000 years from now it will be an A. When the soprano upstairs sings off key, the tenor across the hall is out of tune. An A will always be an A, no matter what. And you see, that's the encouragement from James regarding God. God doesn't change no matter what happens, no matter what time we're in. God is the same. He's always about doing his work in his way for his will. And that's never going to change. If tomorrow morning you wake up and another big bank crashes, God doesn't. Amen? God is immutable. He is impeccable, perfect. He is immutable, changeless. But he is immovable. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth and by the word of truth. Stop right there. God never moves off of his promise. He never moves off of his word. He never moves off of his will. I heard MacArthur say at Shepherd's Conference this week, God never edits a promise he makes. Amen. Praise the Lord. He is immovable. He is going to say, and he is not going to move. No matter come hell or high water. He's not going to. To move. He's not going to be moved by anyone or anything. He's not going to be swayed even by you. He's not going to turn his back on you, dear child of God. It was his decision to make you his own child. And he did that by his own word to show off in, in you what he can do in his grace with his creation. So listen, nothing will move him off of that promise. Nothing will move him off of that covenant. Nothing will move him off of the foundation of that promise. You can take that to the bank for sure. You can rest in him even though your soul is weary and aching. You can speak well of, his, of this impeccable, immutable, immovable God even in the most grievous trials of your life. You can bless his name. In fact, you should bless his name. You must speak well of God. Let me come back to the note I was sounding earlier. I'll ask you, weary and worn young mother, are you thinking perhaps that you've been just given too much? Doubting God in the midst of this present trial? Young father, maybe you're overwhelmed right now and maybe thinking that God just didn't know what he was doing when he made you a husband, when he made you a father, and you're thinking about that the hardships of your life are, are some reason to check out and go to the bar or find some physical relief in an affair. See, that's not remaining under the trial. I want you to understand 
this morning. The blessings of a trial. The warnings in a trial. And the encouragement for a trial. So that you and I can be well prepared. Because there's only three groups of us today. Some of you are in one right now. Some of you are just leaving. You're just coming out of one. And some are going in. All of us. If you're a Christian, that's where you are. And we need to be well prepared to speak well of God in the midst of those things. Are you ready to speak well of God? We're going to do something a bit different this morning. I wonder if you would say you would identify as one of those in the midst of a trial right now. And maybe, maybe even you've been waning in, maybe even doubting God, questioning God, right, even right now. And you would say, I need help. I need some brothers and sisters to come around me and pray. Maybe, maybe you're that young father, that young mother. Maybe there's, you just got the news from the doctor or, or whatever it is, and that's you right now. We don't do this often, but I'm going to ask if that's you. Maybe there's one or maybe there's 50. If you would, because you need people to pray for you, you need people to put their arms around you and help you in the midst of this as a, as a community, if you'd get up out of your seat and just come down here to these stairs and just kneel. And, and as somebody does that, I want somebody else to get out beside them and you'll come down and kneel together and you just put their, your arms around them. And then we're going to pray together for those who do that. And then uh, we'll finish. Andrew will, will come and lead us when we sing.